So I think the the relevance of OWASP Top 10 comes in when we're talking about education and awareness of people who are responsible for developing software. Um, And that is certainly uh, one of the controls that is being asked about or required, you know, whether you're on the commercial side or whether you're on, um, you know, the, the federal sector side. Welcome to OWASP 24-7, sponsored by the Open Web Application Security Project, improving the security of software. With support from the Nexus Community Project, supporting millions of open source developers worldwide. Hi, this is Mark Miller with OWASP. 24-7, I'm here with Caroline Wong from Cobalt, and we're here at Does 17 and you were on a panel yesterday. Yes. And I was really impressed with the three points that you brought up on why people are concerned about security. Let's start there. Great. Thanks, Mark. So, having been in security now for 12 years, starting out leading security teams at eBay and Zynga, I've thought a lot about why security matters. Because what happens when you're a practitioner of security or when you're a security vendor, you find that there's a lot of resistance. And so I thought to myself, fundamentally, why does security matter? And in the context of a conference like Does17, Why does security matter for DevOps? And I've come to the conclusion that there are three reasons, which really can be boiled down to one, uh, and here they are. So the first one is for sales and to prepare for acquisition. Because a cloud company, arguably a company that is practicing a DevOps methodology, has to prove to customers that the products and the services that they're purchasing or integrating are not going to pose a risk. So vendor security becomes very important in the DevOps world. Number one reason security matters is sales and to prepare for acquisition. The second is to avoid negative press. But if you think about that for a moment, Why doesn't an organization want to have negative press? It's because they don't want that to get in the way of their sales. They don't want that to get in the way of potential acquisitions. And number three is compliance. So today, depending on what geographical location you're in, what type of business you're doing, uh, there are these rules you have to follow. And compliance might be regulatory compliance, but it might also be something like compliance with a contract. Uh, And these are simply the things that you need to do to operate your business. And these are, in my mind, the three reasons that security matters, particularly for DevOps. Well, it's interesting that you put compliance third in the list when everybody is screaming compliance. You know, I joined the eBay security team in 2005. In 2002, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley came out. And at the end of 2004, 
uh, was the first version of PCI. So for the past 10 years, it's been sort of convenient for security practitioners to say, if we don't do A, B, and C, we won't be compliant. These are the associated penalties. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that continues to be true. I, I think a lot of folks are curious about what's going to happen next May with GDPR. Yes. Uh, but I really think that compliance is a small thing when compared to sales. So I'll give you a, a brief and common scenario. A company wants to do business and their buyer asks, what's your security situation? What are you doing to secure my customer's data? What are you doing to ensure the security of my product if what I'm doing is integrating your product or service with mine? It seems to me that most of the movement in the security industry happens during crisis time. And we saw that obviously with Equifax, but that was just a whale. But in general, on an individual basis, are you seeing that too, that a company has to be in crisis mode before they're gonna move forward? I think it can certainly be eye-opening for executives. So if you think about a business executive who is not a security subject matter expert. Where does this person get their information about security? Maybe they're flying on a plane and they pick up a copy of the Wall Street Journal or Fortune Magazine. They read about how you know, Yahoo got a $450 million discount, uh, or rather, Verizon got a $450 million discount on their acquisition of Yahoo due to data breach. Um, you know, they read about Equifax. And when I joined the Zynga security team in 2010, you know, the CEO did not think to himself, oh, security is a good idea. I'm going to invest in a large security team. Uh, rather, Zynga had suffered um, some some fairly major incidents uh, and they wanted them to stop. And that's why they hired a security team. So, so there's got to be a business driver. Where does risk aversion fit in? Isn't legal the one that should be identifying it? And your example is always, why would you put a $200 fence around a $5 asset? Right. That's a legal decision, isn't it, to protect the company? I think legal is certainly someone that has, like, a lot of authority. You know, a security person walks into the room and says, I think we should put a $200 fence around this $5 asset. I would say, as a security practitioner, having worked with legal on various compliance matters, uh, it's awfully convenient when the lawyer is backing you up as a security person. People tend to listen to lawyers when they give advice. I don't think that people always listen to security people when they give advice. Right. Paula Thrasher just walked in. Paula, you uh, and I and Caroline had lunch today talking about the security stuff. And one of the things that we did talk about is what Caroline just mentioned, the idea that sales and mergers and acquisition is the top thing that's mm -hmm. going to drive security change. I, I thought um, Caroline really said it well and said that the really most part, you're talking about a business, um, and I work in the federal space, and there's sort of a dual hat that I wear, right? So I work for a business, 
we are a publicly traded company, um, CSRA. Um, as a publicly traded company, you know, shareholders expect us to make money. It's about sales, right? Obviously, in our industry, if we, it, to the point, became known for a security breach, not a lot of federal customers would want to hire us to do business, right? Mm -hmm. So at the end, the reason for security is for business. For our customers, they don't sell things. There's no revenue. <laughs> so they are only concerned with two things, really, uh, and those two things being both the uh, what we refer to in the industry is the Washington Post effect, um, really being the name for being in the media for anything. But, of course, um, any time your agency sort of makes the Post or any other newspaper, for that matter, for some form of investigative reporting uh, or for something more public, um, that's bad. And that's the one sort of bad thing you can do in government is, is get yourself on the front page of the Post somehow. In the federal sector, the two things that are concerned are the Washington Post effect that you you do something that, that you know in the Post or some other form of media that um, you know investigative journalism discovers you to be doing something bad or, or you do something so egregiously bad that you just end up in the news with it or that there's two other aspects which is the uh, regulatory side so in the government that's either the GAO which is the Government Accountability Office who audits um, federal agencies or the inspector general. A lot of agencies have their own inspector's office, um, but there's also you know federal controls as well. So those two things um, to be found not complying, um, or or to be found to be um, high risk, you know from a compliance standpoint, that's the one thing sort of as a as a federal employee, as a federal agency, you know that actually has a real serious consequence on you as a person in that agency, and then obviously as the contractor on us too. But but those are the things that re matter so much because there isn't like you said, you know, we don't sell government services. Um, that's a different, you know, yeah. you provide it to the citizenry, right? So, Caroline, that pretty much aligns with what almost directly aligns with the exact same three things that you had, but in yours on the third one, compliance. It really is the bottom of the stack, and we had touched on that. With government, I think it's a higher priority then, correct? Absolutely. I mean, in my, from my understanding, and, and I've never worked in the government sector, so you know, it's from what I've learned from others, uh, it seems as though uh, if you're found to be out of compliance, then it's sort of game over for you, which I think is the federal government version of you know, if you're in industry, if you're doing business, if you've got you know, a for-profit business, um, you know, then if you're not making any sales, it's game over for you. So one of the really interesting topics that came up uh, today when Paula and Mark and I were having lunch was this idea that, you know, in Paula's case, um, she has actually signed paper um, acknowledging and accepting that she bears the risk of security issues, uh, which is something that I found to be fascinating. Uh, Paula, can you tell us a little bit about how that experience was for you? Yeah, and I, um, so just to give a little background on the genesis of this, so um, I think the year was approximately 2015. Um, OPM, which is the Office of Personnel Management, um, is the um, agency, among other things, does background investigations for um, government employees to make sure they hold the right clearances to their jobs. And there was a breach of the system that was contractor managed um, of that data, which included some of the most, um, you know, personally identifiable information, you know, your names, your addresses, your family, their address, bank account numbers, many things that were, was a huge, um, it was hacked, 
and it was ex- uh, disclosed, and that that information, um, what the government found was that the government incurred the cost of the credit monitoring and the remediation and the help desk to answer questions and all the things that came as a result of the breach. And the contractor that was responsible for the data was not, there was not a way to be held fiscally you know, responsible for that. So the government um, changed the way they did business. Um, and I'm, I'm going to have to apologize because I can't recall whether it was a legislative action or an executive action. I think the latter. I think it was an executive action. But in any case, it came down that for any new contract that the government signed, um, certainly at certain agencies, I can't say it happened universally, but for new work that involved PII, in that contract was now a clause that if you wanted the business, you had to sign this clause, you know, back and say, for me, not, and the answer is no, you have to sign this clause. And that clause basically said, look, as a company, you are financially responsible for this much based on uh, disclosure, uh, you know, inadvertent disclosure of the PII data you were responsible for. So if, for example, you know, one of my employees put that data on a laptop and walked out the door, I would be, you know, fiscally responsible for that disclosure. Well, the company would, right? The company would be responsible for that cost, right? Um, Which my lawyers very happily calculated for me was between 40 and $60 million. So not tiny. (laughs) And, 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 you know, almost equivalent to you just lost the entire revenue for the contract the second that happens, if not, then some, right? Plus, of course, the Washington Post effect, right? <laughs> the the, the uh, goodwill and reputation that would come with it, much less the, the financial one. Borrowing from the sort of Sorbanes-Oxley type style thing where you have to have this accountability, the company had to indicate in this contract, as I, the project manager, signed the contract, that's something that you, you do in the government, you know, there's a representative of the company who's authorized to sign the contract, and as the program manager, that was me, as well as contract officer, right, we co-sign. As that responsible party, the company had to say, this is the person the company has designated as the owner of the risk. This person owns the risk, and I sign that I'm acknowledging that I own this risk. And then the security official had to sign to say, I sign that we are following our uh, you know, compliance uh, controls and that I'm, you know, I own that we follow those controls. And then, of course, you might be audited and that would be the third person, but, but those things had to be signed. And then, of course, what the company does is you know, take out insurance or do other you know, business actions to sort of you know, account for that. And, and actually, I do think... Um, I'm aware more and more that even commercial contracts are doing the same thing. So I I don't think this is per se unique to the federal space, but to talk about what it was like personally, all of a sudden I am signing a piece of paper, uh, even if it's not me personally, on behalf of the company, Mm -hmm. that I am incurring a risk that I am personally responsible for this uh, significant risk to the company. And there were some... um, legalese in that language there that basically said if it was egregious I could be held personally liable up isn't to... egregious and arbitrary? Well it is, right, and, and so this is the lawyer part right, lawyers will tell you, well that's unproven, mm-hmm. um, no one has ever been brought to trial for egregious, so there is not yet a legal definition of what that is and um, and they were like, but, but don't be the first <laughs> right? don't, don't be the one that finds that out um, so generally speaking, 
it wouldn't have mattered, right? And if it had been breached for any reason, the, I'd still be liable for that, you know, forty to sixty million dollars. Yeah. You know, and again, it depends on what I did, mm-hmm. but but it, I'm still I still own it, and that was a um, that sort of moment. It's not like I wasn't paying attention to security, but it gives you pause because suddenly there's a price tag, and there's a, a there's an changer. actual. It really is a game changer because there's actually a real accountability to me personally. Whereas before it was just sort of a slightly more abstract. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it was, right? And that's just, um, it, and it wasn't a shared responsibility. I mean, it was mine. So I think that um, it made me really appreciate, uh, you know, to what I was saying is that I, I had this impressive and rather scary responsibility. And what concerned me was I was also responsible to the company for, for instance, the financial health of the contract. But I had excellent financial team, and I had excellent data on the finances of the contract and the health of the contract financially. And I was accountable to certain SLAs of the system, and I had excellent data about how the system was doing, how the teams were doing, how they were performing their work. All of those things that I was accountable for, I had great data as a manager to, to, to control for the processes and the system in place to make sure that, that I could do those things. And I looked at the security, and I thought, I am now, you know, I've been accountable. Um, but I've been accountable for the security thing. I don't have that same level of visibility. I don't really know, you know, I, I, I'm kind of like, I hope, you know, <laughs> I'm blissfully ignorant. <laughs> this is a really, as a multiple systems of, of uh, record, uh, multiple different applications, data in a variety of locations, um, some of it on my physical premises, some of it in a data center, some of it in the cloud, some of it in transit, different applications, different levels of data, lots of complexity to the kinds of things I was exposed to from a security perspective and very little visibility into how secure I actually was. Karen, where does that come in the commercial field? I mean, are you seeing any of this? Yeah, so I'd say on the commercial side of things, there's less emphasis on individual accountability. And I would say, in general, there's a lot of variety. So you'll get contracts, and they'll say, some of them will say, you know, there's got to be a specific SLA that's adhered to for known or found security issues. Um, but, but at the same time, while I think there's less of an emphasis on individual accountability, there is often... Um, a little bit more prescription around which specific security controls ought to be in place. And again, it can vary um, widely. So oftentimes what happens is you've got a SaaS vendor and their buyer, particularly if the buyer is at an enterprise level, maybe they're a little more mature when it comes to security. When the buyer has decided, yes, we're interested in what the vendor has to offer, the buyer security team gets involved and they start to ask questions. And that might range from, you know, here's a questionnaire to fill out. uh, And based on that questionnaire, we're gonna have a conversation. But it might also be, what sorts of documentation do you have uh, in terms of your compliance or alignment with a variety of different frameworks? Can you share audit findings with us? Can you share technical assessments with us? Um, we've actually found that some sales teams will demand that a third-party penetration test be performed because that's what's holding up the sales process. 
Yeah. And actually, you know, I'd say actually the interesting thing in the federal space is that's not optional. That is a mandatory part of doing business. And uh, for better or worse, it's actually, in, in my mind, it's actually kind of a, you know, to the taking responsibility, in a way it's kind of a nice thing, is that, um, you know, most every, obviously risks vary depending on the nature of the system you're covering, but um, it, the government has a fairly bureaucratic process of, uh, the typical word is authority to operate. And to do that, you have to implement a series of controls and I don't get to self-certify that I met a, a completely independent group is going to go through and say yes, and that isn't just show me some paper, although that, that's part of it too, for sure. We love paper in the government. It's also, you know, potentially a security team will pin test your system, or they will look at your logs, or they will, you know, so they, they are the final arbiter of you meeting that control. So you are fully audited before you even get to turn the system on. You know, the biggest challenge actually is is that maybe unlike a commercial provider where sometimes the, the beat of the market says that you will accept certain risk and just go, you know, I, I will just, you know, you know what, it's not perfect, but I got to be first mover advantage or second mover advantage, I got to get there. The government will go, yep, nope, you have not satisfied your controls, no go, you're not live. Is that manual now or is it automated? Is it hybrid? How are they doing it? You know, it's... It is varied across agencies. Um, the level of automation is still very low mm -hmm. in the federal sector compared to, I, I, I hypothesize, the Isn't that a sector. bottleneck then? It is a huge bottleneck. It's a huge bottleneck. And, and we have, um, as a company, and I think we have as an industry, moved towards more automated controls. I think the, um, the mind shift, um, the mindset shift that occurred that helped was the changes in the controls that some of our customers refer to. So NIST changed some of their policies, and some of our customers call it RMF, and some of our customers call it ongoing authorization, and they mean the same thing, that's just what they shorthand it for, but the idea being, it used to be you would get this once, you know, you get certified once, and then you set it and forget it, and then five years I'll re-audit you, right? But of course, security is dynamic, um, and we're in a, a advanced persistent threat world. And so that's not like a thing you can just set and forget. So the ongoing authorization is that you set a series of controls and that you are constantly proving that you're meeting the controls and you're constantly dynamically changing how you implement the controls based on things that happen. And that's, truthfully, I, I would say to any customer of ours that's not doing it, sort of like, what world do you live in that you're not changing, uh, you, you know, the the hacker doesn't really care <laughs> whether you've met this you know they're gonna get they're gonna go after your system you know and you've got to defend period all the time there's no like well uh, you know I'll get to that on Tuesday like that's not an option so how how on earth um, and so what ends up of course happening is that even customers who haven't moved to this documentation framework as I would call it like this new way of thinking about how to document the security controls the actual state of the practice is that of course they're changing their controls on a daily basis because they're not stupid. And they're, when they're being attacked, they do something different to react to this. And then what happens is the drift between what they say they're doing and what they're actually doing gets wider and wider mm -hmm. as they respond to these active threats. And then they come back annually and they go, oh my gosh, and they panic and they update all the documents. And it, it, what it becomes is because that drift happens, you hope that those controls are all still in place and they're all still valid and they're all still good. But there's, you know, there's no trust but verifying occurring. 
because it was a Word document, and how do you verify a Word document? I mean, that's just not a realistic. So whether it has or hasn't, it has to. It does have to go that way, and it's a culture shift, and it's a technology lift, mm -hmm. because that's a different way of doing things that we don't necessarily have all the tools to do yet, but we'll get there. Carolyn, that's really in your wheelhouse. She mentioned NIST. You and I had talked very briefly about OWASP. I mean, how important is OWASP top 10 to what we're talking about? So I think that the, the relevance of OWASP top 10 comes in when we're talking about education and awareness of people who are responsible for developing software. Um, and that is certainly uh, one of the controls that is being asked about or required, you know, whether you're on the commercial side or whether you're on, um, you know, the, the federal sector side. Um, I think OWASP Top 10 is a really important uh, education and awareness tool. Um, that being said, I think that for organizations that can get a level of visibility into their sort of top end vulnerabilities. So it's interesting to know what's the OWASP top 10, but for any organization, I think it's a little more interesting to know what's your top 10. And maybe it's not even the top threat 10, maybe it's like the top five or the top three. Um, but the reason I think that's practically very important to know is because security for most organizations is sort of this like unlimited number of things that we have to do. Uh, and there's a big question around how do you prioritize those activities? How do you make decisions about what we're going to do and what we're not going to do when you have limited resources and limited time and a limited budget? Um, and so I think something like the OAS top 10 or even a bit more useful, an organization's top five or top three um, can be really useful in that prioritization exercise. The interesting thing for me, for the OWASP Top 10, a lot of people use it as a standard, and it really is a guideline, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think um, it's, it's most useful as an educational and an awareness tool. Yeah. The specific application is always going to be dependent on a technology stack, a business context, um, and, and I think to use it as the gold standard versus a minimum baseline uh, is, is sort of a, an incorrect assumption. Yeah, I, I really prefer it as a training tool to get developers to think about security concerns, not as the only 10 things you need to think about as a developer. And as long as you got those 10 checked, you're good. Right. Because how people would attack one system is not how they would attack another system because of the target, the reason, the motivation, the, um, you know, for, for instance, I had teams who were building, uh, you know, constituency-facing public application that didn't really have a lot of sensitive data. It was kind of a, you know, outreach thing from the government perspective. Um, the embarrassing thing for that application is a denial of service attack coming down or, you know, not like that kind of thing, the availability attack factor, mm -hmm. the integrity of the data. I mean, honestly, there wasn't much integrity to deal with. There are other systems where somebody attacking the integrity of the data, um, you can think to certainly a number of agencies that do regulatory concerns, mm -hmm. uh, be that tax or monitoring the financial system or whatever, where somebody, you know, attacked the integrity of the data, that's a massive attack vector and a huge concern, that's the kinds of things we care about in that application. So 
I wouldn't want a developer to like just check the box and then say, well, that's great because think about the design of the thing you're building, not just this arbitrary checklist. And I think that's that's the one thing that I'm always wary um, of the checklist is that you know that you get too attached to it and you don't um, you don't actually use your brain to think about what it is that I need to secure in this context. The interesting part for me uh, on a personal level is A9. You and I looked at that for a second. People are still using components with known vulnerabilities. And when we realize that 80% of the new applications are being built with components, that just boggles my mind. Yeah, yeah. I Prior to my current role at Cobalt, uh, I worked for Sigital, uh, which, which is now Synopsys. Uh, and John Stephen used to present this sort of visual diagram of like, you know, here's your typical app, uh, and it sort of visually showed, you know, here's how much of the code was actually written by the developers of that company, and here's how much is open source mm-hmm. and third-party components. Um, and if you're not thinking about that, uh, you know, you're really missing a major part um, of, of your attack and threat landscape, attack surface, I think is the correct term. Yeah, I think the challenge I see on my teams, like why, why would they do that? So first off, do they know? So obviously if you don't have a way of knowing that this is a vulnerable component, you know, you blissfully go about your life not realizing that you shouldn't be using this component. Um, and you think, well, okay, yeah, of course you should know, but if you can imagine you have hundreds of frameworks in your application, um, you know, you're not tracking the security, you're developing, right? You're not tracking the security feeds for all those other things. So, so having that visibility is, is step one, but also, um, even if you knew it, um, you know, I'm joking, like, would you get in trouble for doing it? But also, you know, there's a comfort level, right? And you actually think a, a developers start to form identities around some of these frameworks. So we say frameworks, and it can be as trivial as like this is a log framework, right? And so this helps me do logging, or this is a, you know, um, I think the one that, that um, got deleted, you know, the copy left, it just, you know, crops text or whatever. So it'd be very tiny. Yeah, that one was... that, That's a fascinating one, but it's, yeah, it's yeah. tiny, right? So it can be some super tiny thing. To something major, you know, struts, spring, that's not just a, or, you know, I think even to the JavaScript frameworks, Angular, React, those aren't just, like, tiny little functions. They're whole frameworks, and developers, like, stick that on their resume. I know, you know, this, and it becomes an identity thing. So if um, struts has a vulnerability, and my resume says I'm a Java developer and I know struts, when I go to the next project... I might not want to use Spring. I might not want to use another framework because I'm a stress person. And I'm not comfortable. And I feel like my expertise isn't being used. So so even if they know, if they thought they could get away with it, or I could just, I could not use that. You know, if they think, I don't think they're trying to do it on purpose, but if they think like, it's not a big deal, or I can just not use that piece, or I can get, I can solve for that, I can just protect it, or I can do, you know, there there's a hesitation to just, willy-nilly switch up frameworks when you're comfortable with something because you, as a developer, invest a lot of energy in learning a framework and so to just throw it out because it's, it, you know, pinks up red, that's, that's not, uh, it's a, not a trivial thing to ask a developer to do. Yeah, I think it's, I think that to use open source and third-party components is modern software development and to consider uh, that that might not be an option is unrealistic. So I think the question is, okay, given that this is the state of affairs, you know, how then do you proceed? How then do you proceed to identify which components are being used? You know, how do you assess those components for vulnerabilities? Um, and, and I think, you know, there's, 
There are some, the assessment piece, uh, certainly, you know, there's some, some technical aspects to it. Uh, but what I think is the greatest challenge for organizations is actually uh, the people in process uh, pieces on the front and on the back. So uh, number one, you know, what is where? Uh, and then number two, you know, once you've identified something and you want to do something about it, which is to say switch it out or update it or change it, there's there's a process that needs to occur um, and that depending on an organization's planning, uh, you know, to use DevOps terms, it's, it's probably unplanned work, mm-hmm. uh, potentially it's rework, and that's going to, guess what, take the time of planned work. Yeah, and I, I think that's, I watched many, many, many teams find themselves in this corner. They they have a component, they built a, a, a system, a legacy system around this framework or pieces of this framework or some chunk of code or something. And vulnerability crops up and, oh my gosh. And you look around your code base and you go, this thing is everywhere, right? And this is going to take time. Even if you were great at Agile, great at DevOps, I mean, it went quickly. Someone's got to write a lot of lines of code to undo this thing, right? And that's great, except for that this thing is not the features that my customer wants. So the temptation, and I've seen this many times, is the temptation is how can I put some duct tape around it to just block off, you know, can I put a little box around this and then just deal with it later? Instead of actually going through and line by line going, I mean, I recall one where it was a framework uh, vulnerability, and we, we were using this framework, how many lines of code would we have to change? And it was like 180. Well, that's great. But that's how many methods is that? How many how many pages on the application am I testing? How many, I mean, that is a lot. It doesn't sound like a lot. Like, that's 180. That's no big deal. That's well, you're a not lot. talking about dependencies yet. Right, yeah. we haven't even gotten into dependencies. Exactly. Yeah. This is a lot of code that is changing in this application for this one vulnerability. When the other solution might be, can you just put a firewall rule on? Can we just, you know, I mean, that, that's the first thing developers can go to because they're going to go, like, that's a lot of work that's not my customer yelling at me for the things they want me to work on. So I think that's the harder part to acknowledge that when you, when you go all in with something like that as a framework, as you do, when you suddenly have to just totally erase it from your database or your, you know, whatever, whatever you got to erase it from, wherever in your application this thing lives... That's not a trivial decision, and I think that um, that's why people end up in this like duct tape situation over time, and you start layering that in, and you get this cruft that happens because very few businesses will give you the space to take on that kind of massive, non-functional change. It's, it's hard. You both were on a panel with John Willis yesterday, and John said even talking about having the developers thinking about security is too late. So so I think one of the things John talked about was speaking with a hacker and finding out that this hacker, um, you know, four out of five successful hacking attempts uh, that this individual had performed uh, had to do with social engineering and resulted in compromise. Mm-hmm. And John is saying, you know, you train your developers all you want, you know, that's not going to prevent, you know, the malicious person, you know, following someone in uh, who's holding the door open for them. And so I think, um, you know, there is 
something to build it in. Um, organizations who can use, for example, predefined security features, um, you know, something like, hey, developers, don't roll your own crypto, you know, use this one that we built for you instead, um, can eliminate some of that. Um, I, I think I've, I've observed it in more mature organizations. Um, I don't see it currently as a pervasive practice. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in general, I wouldn't characterize developers don't care about security. That's usually not the case. Um, developers don't always have the awareness to know all the things they need to do to handle security concerns. That's a education and competence issue. Um, but it's not wrong to say that there's a social engineering aspect because I can recall um, a security breach when I was an IT director and I had to go before Defense Security Services and provide a full debrief of everything we found having been um, attacked via a, a zero-day exploit that affected us and some others in our industry. And what I found was developers had admin rights to their machines, which was a layer of vulnerability, which is still true of a lot of developers. So they were a honeypot to go hit. Uh, they got there by going to a website that was popular with developers, and certain developers clicked a link they probably should not have clicked. But you know what? Developers do that. <laughs> all of us do, right? We all, yeah. you know, click that uh, URL expander, or we don't pay too close attention, and we read the hyperlink, and we don't look at, you know, we don't hover over it with our, you know, we're, we're human, and we make that social engineering mistake. And what I could say was, well, out of my 90 developers, only seven clicked the link. But <laughs> seven clicked the link. You know, that, so there that you go. That so, the question, though. Is, should we be concentrating more on the personal aspect, putting funds towards the personal aspect. Is it education that's going to stop this? I really don't think so. That's the, how much, it, it is a challenge. Social engineering is such a difficult topic to cover. Um, I don't know that there would be some, especially for scale, for the quantity of developers in the world, that you could convince it so zero of them make that human factors error and do that social engineering things. Um, that's hard. Uh, ideally, I think in anything in security, you can't prevent it, but can you catch it? And, and can you, you know? Yeah. yeah, so security has so many different aspects to it. BSIM has 113 controls. The cloud controls matrix has like 133. ISO 27017 has like 121. I mean, these are like long lists of things. Um, I think that to boil down security to a few categories, um, I, I like to look at NIST cybersecurity framework. I think that it takes um, a relatively practical and useful look at how to do something like this. Um, and there are these five categories, and I don't remember the five categories right now, but what I do remember is my personal simplification of the five categories into three categories, which is number one, identify, number two, prevent, and number three, react. Um, all of which I think are super important. So number one, identify, what do I got, right? That is part of what we were just talking about when it comes to vulnerable components. Uh, the second one, prevent. So education goes into this, and I think education happens at a code level, and it also happens at like a social, like human kind of level. Um, and number three, react. 
So I think one of the things about today is that an organization cannot assume that it's not going to be breached, that it's not going to be compromised. I think it's more realistic to assume that it's inevitable, it's going to happen, and to put plans in place for when it does. It's interesting you said because we're actually thinking about playing games, meaning in the company that I'm with, with Sonatype, and that is playing what if. Sit around the table and say, what if Struts 2 is announced tomorrow? What would we do? Is that going to be effective? Is that a cherry pick that would help, or is that just You know, I, I'll say I, that is an interesting idea in the sense of one of the things I have, um, I've, I've had the great privilege to work with some really excellent security um, folks on the teams that I've been on, and one of the things I always appreciate, as I joke, is that they're really paranoid. <laughs> and so I laugh about that because um, I always describe the world as like an optimistic engineer and a pessimistic engineer. And so what's great about pessimists, what's great about optimists is that they're innovative and they think about the art of the possible. What's great about a pessimist is they go, what if, and they come up with, what if you do, what if stress came out? What if somebody tried to do this thing? What if, what if, who has the keys to that? What if that person tried, you know, and if you start to think about that pessimistic angle, it, it challenges you to think, like, oh, you know, I did not think about what if that. But isn't and, that and a black a good, hole, though, Paula? But that's you can get all the outline conditions and drive yourself nuts. You can. I always coach teams, I guess to the point of, you know, what's yours, right? What's your top ten? Yeah. I always try to coach teams to say, when you're done with that brainstorm exercise, draw your little risk chart, whatever rubric you want to use for that, and draw, what's, what's the probability that would happen? And what's the impact of a dip? And then rank them, because if that thing is a you know, the odds of somebody pulling that off is just slim, and the impact of the system is minimal. Don't worry about that risk. Right? Just that's that's a that's a that's a rare event. It's probably not going to happen. Um, but do worry about the one that, yeah, that's pretty easy to do, and that would have a really big impact on our system if it happened. That's where I would spend the time and energy. And and I do think if you said these are my top risks. Um, I always encourage teams to track their risks visually, if possible, and turn those risks into something you're doing about it. Because so many people are like, oh, I've got a risk register, and then do you do something with that register? Because otherwise, <laughs> it's really not helpful. And if you've got, um, I, I created a risk burndown framework for one of my teams where if you, as you marched through the mitigations you were putting in place, you know, security world, we call that sometimes POAMs or whatever, but um, a plan of action milestone, I guess. I don't know why we call it that, but we do. Um, yeah, here's the vulnerability, which might be a framework. You know, we're going to take pieces out, or we're going to, you know, upgrade the server, and then we're going to do this thing, and, you know, these are the things we're going to do. And so we're going to upgrade the server. To upgrade the server, i got to remove this code, remove this code, i got to change this framework. And there's this whole, you know, to-do list of technical actions that I'm going to do over the course of the next three weeks, maybe. As you knock those actions off, you're mitigating something. Did you change the probability of it happening? Did you change the impact of it occurring? Mm -hmm. And as you show, because sometimes those mitigations, you haven't solved it at all until the very end and you get them all done. And sometimes each of those incremental steps takes you down that risk list a little bit more. And that might choose that might help you choose the order to do them. Right? How are these how are these things I'm doing gonna actually affect my risk? Because if you're not, if you're just gonna keep risk register and you're gonna log your risk and you're not gonna actually take an action based on it, um, why manage it? You're not managing it at that point. So that to me is don't just think about your risk. Think about the technical actions you're taking and how are they actually bending the curve on the risk. Because if this is going to take me six months to remediate, 
but I can do one thing that would reduce the impact, do that first. Then do the thing that, you know, eliminates the probability or something. You know, yeah. do, think about it that way. And I think that's a good way for teams to get over, oh my gosh, there's this huge, huge amount of work I have to do to resolve this risk. What quick one thing could I do to change one of those metrics, the probability or the impact? So Mark, I really like this idea of playing a what-if game with your team. It reminds me of a tabletop exercise that's done for incident response planning. It reminds me of disaster recovery planning scenarios. Um, and there's two reasons I like it. One is because I think it's really good practice. You can identify sort of like actionable gaps like, oh, this happened, who do I call? How do I know who I'm supposed to call? Do I have that person's phone number? Is it up to date? Super pragmatic things. The other thing is, I think you can begin to train people's brains mm -hmm. because when it comes to security, a lot of the most interesting security attacks are malicious and they're creative. And if you get people thinking creatively in response to a what-if scenario, rather than in sort of like a checklist kind of way, uh, then I, I think you can get uh, greater results. That's where I was going with this too, because I think that people going to the RSA conference, people coming to DOES, one of the things they're fighting with is, how do I get a handle around this gorilla? What can I do to make an impact? Are you guys seeing something that's consistently, if somebody says, where do I start? How do you answer that question? So, I am going to get, I have this like list of three things thing that I do. Um, I think where... I like your list. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this list-based approach, which I think is different from a checklist-based approach. But I'm just trying to like put out like ways of thinking about stuff, right? So... I have three more categories for where to start, which is like find, fix, and prevent. So I think one of the big topics that came up during our lunch was what about this lack of visibility, right? When Paul is put in this position where she needs to sign on the dotted line, like you told us at lunch today, you used to receive a security briefing every week that was 15 minutes long. And after you signed this piece of paper, you asked for one full hour security briefing because you needed additional visibility into what was going on. So I think for any organization, if you don't have some defect discovery in place, you got to get some defect discovery in place because guess what? You could be looking for it or you could not be looking for it. There are probably vulnerabilities in your code. And the first thing to do is to go and look to see what's there. The second thing is to try and fix some of those things. And the third is to try and prevent them. Um, I always think one of the things that we talk about sometimes with some of our teams, our agile teams, about prioritization is um, weighted shortest job first. And not that you have to use I'm that. I'm sorry, word. say that again. Weighted shortest job yeah. first. Okay. And so it's a, it comes from Scaled Agile. We use it for other projects that may or may not be Scaled Agile. Um, and uh, the reason I'll use that rubric is, or that, not rubric, but that, that little acronym and that framework is that... Um, it, the thing about the shortest job, I'm going to start with that. The shortest job is something that's small, a small batch, a small increment. The weighted comes to the priority. And so the weighting in the context of the security thing, what to do first, is the security impact. And that gets back to the, the thing I was just talking about, about um, if I were going to pick the security things I would do, if you took that risk list and said that probability and that impact, 
Um, and I would consider, you know, yeah. I have no visibility into my risk to be a risk, right? <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be risk one on the list. And it's, it has a pretty much 100% probability <laughs> and a major impact, right? And so I'm going to take an action to increase my visibility, right, that, for instance. So when you think about that, so if you prioritized all your risks, you know, the highest risk to the lowest risk, what's, and, the, and then you wrote a bunch of actions that you could do to mitigate those, What's the highest impact thing you could do that's small? Who's going to make that list? But why not? I mean, but that... No, I'm, but, I'm but, not saying why not. I'm saying physically, who is going to make that I list? Hope yeah, so, we, so at eBay, the people who made that list, and it was like a 200-plus item-long list, were the CISO and his direct reports. Mm -hmm. And we sat in a room, and we had whiteboards, and we filled those whiteboards. And that is... What well, we did, and, and we took, I think, I like Paula's approach. Uh, what we did was we said, what's the priority? And we're talking about a room full of security people. Guess what? Everything was high priority. Yeah. And, so, and so we needed, and we eventually came to, uh, but the first uh, draft of it, you know, was 200 all high-risk things. Um, <laughs> but, but I like Paula's approach because I think it's very practical. Yeah, I mean, I... You know, if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. But um, out of taking those, like I said, out of really breaking it out to those things that you're doing to decrease the probability of something happening or to decrease the impact of something happening, um, it, you can start with the things that are straight up. What happens, of course, is what things will instantly pop to the top of your list are the things that have a 100% um, probability of happening because they're already happening. Right? The, mm -hmm. the known vulnerability is 100% a thing, yeah. right? Then what's the impact? Well, any of those known vulnerabilities that has a severe impact is like already automatically on the list. And so the good news is for most teams is that they probably have a plenty of stuff to do just on that, and that's a great place to start. But the trick is that you have to actually break it into something small and actionable, because where I see teams get stuck is to solve this risk around, like, again, the framework example, right? To solve this, you know, POAN, to solve this thing, right? It's implied that this is this, like, six-month-long project. Well, that, I mean, in six months, that's a lot of being hacked while you're figuring it out, frankly. Yeah. And so what small thing can I do right now and then tomorrow and then the next day and the next day? And by the end of the six months, I will have done 20 things and now, and now I'm cured. And that, I think, is trying to push in that direction. And to the biggest impact, to me, some of the biggest impact, and this is why I'm just so massively a fan of automation all the time, is it's such a, it's a small job. It's usually a very fast thing to put OWASP top 10 scanner in your integrated development environment. And now I'm getting feedback. And it has a big impact because now I'm seeing things I want to see. Or to put a code scanner on the build. It doesn't take your build engineer very long to do, and it has a high impact. Or put a scanner on the software, or run a security test, or run, you know, pen test starts to get a little more effort. I mean, you know, proportionate to the effort, but those things that are quick and automated, they're low effort, and they're high impact. Okay, let's be specific then. I actually was writing, as you said that, what are you guys seeing as patterns for the small actionable items that people can go, yeah, I could do that right away. My certainly first is if you're not doing static code scanning, 
th that's just to me that is the quickest, easiest thing any team could do right now. Mm. Uh, be that both um, design scanning and security scanning. And I, I mention that because uh, my personal experience is bad. The places that the code is poorly designed is also usually the places the code's not secure. Um, because that's where all the duct tape was put to fix the problems that were there before, right? So this is sort of so that's so scan scan the code. If you're not scanning the code, the, uh, most teams are. Uh, you know that's not a. Um, but if you're not, like, absolutely, please start. That that is the easiest, quickest thing you can do. Then your build. If your build isn't automated and you're not scanning your build, yeah. do that next, right? And then your frameworks. If you're not scanning your frameworks, then you you know then you know kind of work your way up the chain. And then if you're not automating some of your security testing. You know, so proportional to the effort, start on that list. Are you scanning the code of the developer? Are you scanning the code of the build? Are you scanning the built, you know, the full package of software supply chain? And then are you automating, once you've got all the scanning, that's all the easy stuff, then are you automating as much of security checks as you can? Not because I think you can automate out security, but because the more you automate, the more your security team can focus on the things between the lines. You catch the easy stuff, and now we can focus on the hard stuff. Caroline, it's the keywords yesterday on the panel were, as you can, because a lot of people that are in security have that mindset that I have to do everything. And you are of the oak, too. You have to do what you can do, right? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that you know, so we're at a DevOps conference. The whole point of DevOps is to support the organization. The whole point of security is also to support the organization. It, it, security is not, it's not, a, it's not usually an organization's number one priority. Even if an organization is a security organization, usually their number one priority is something like generating sales or meeting the basic requirements that are required to do business. Um, that being said, you know, I think scanning is important. I don't know that I would characterize static code analysis as either easy or quick. And I'll tell you briefly why. Because a machine can only look for the things it's told to look for. Um, and it can be very effective when customized mm -hmm. to a particular technology environment. But a lot of times what happens is these results can be very noisy. Mm -hmm. uh, and who or what is going to filter out the signal from the noise. Uh, we had a heated debate yesterday on the panel about automation and to what extent it can and ought to be uh, you know, incorporated into a security program. Uh, and I personally uh, take a view of it that says the items which are the best candidates to be automated are things that are well-defined and which occur all the time. The thing about security is that by the nature of either uh, an unintentional misuse of an application or an intentional abuse of an application, uh, an attacker is actually trying to use an application in a way that it's not intended. Uh, and so there are going to be these scenarios for which it's nearly impossible to test automatically. I'll give you an example that applies to most organizations uh, with any sort of an internet presence, which is a forgot your password flow. Mm -hmm. So when you forget your password, what happens? You press, I forgot my password, 
and presuming that at some earlier point in time you were asked some security questions and the application captured that data, uh, it's then going to ask you to verify your questions. Uh, it's going to send you a code if you get them correctly and it's going to allow you to reset your password. There are bunches of things that could go wrong when that's being implemented and some of them uh, can be caught and identified in an automated manner uh, and others require an actual human uh, to examine the business logic uh, and actually check it out. So I think, and so, so here's the other thing that I just want to say about this huge push for automation. Why the fear of manual security controls? Because historically, when you say manual security controls, what you hear is slow and expensive. But what if that weren't the case? What if you could get a human to do manual pen testing and you could find that human and get them to start testing in less than 48 hours? Uh, and what if you could actually have that human talk to your security and your dev teams uh, interactively you know, for up to like a year after that pen test is complete? I think there are, there are new ways that manual security controls are being implemented today uh, that make it a lot more appealing than it used to be. I, I think that would change the conversation for sure. I, I think I hear manual security controls and I think a Word document and my developers are never going to read. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I feel like one of the challenges with um, where I see the automation is don't do the stupid, don't, don't leave the door unlocked. Don't do the stupid thing, right? Let's avoid doing the stupid, obvious door unlocked scenarios um, because um, if we can just take the silly things off the table to the point then we can focus on the hard things. Um, because it is the unexpected behavior that's the challenge. And um, I, the one challenge, of course, I, I agree completely with the static code inspection, by the way. So, so the one thing I absolutely hate is the idea that we're going to implement code standards. We're going to write a Word document to implement code standards. There's not a developer in the world that's going to read that, and they're not, certainly not going to follow it. So code standards are what you, you scan, right? And the same, I think, for that becomes security. But I also know that developers are engineers, and they love to you know, solve things in creative ways. And so if you implement a code scanner, you'll see stuff, common, common example, no variables in like a loop, you know, if loop for 10 or whatever, and they go i equals 10, right? You're not allowed to use i. You can't use one letter variables. You've got to have multi-letter. So then they go, if Superman equals 10, you know, that doesn't mean anything easier. That's a really dumb variable name. But the static code scanner doesn't know it's a dumb variable name. It just knows it's not one character. And so that passes the test. So you developers quickly learn to game the system. So you can have a system but it doesn't replace, you know, the, the, the total human in the loop. And I think that's, that's the, but I would also say that um, to the extent that you do customize, and you should, if you're implementing static code scanning, make customization of that part of the process. But also the point of it is, isn't, you know, for me to game the system. The point of it is when I'm kind of tired and I'm kind of lazy and I'm just not thinking, and I sloppily type for you know, the loop thing, I type for i equals 10, I want it to go squawk, and I go, oh, okay, right, fine. Okay, for you know, loop through password questions equals 10, all right, fine, now I've given it a good name. You know, so I, I want it to be the memory jar, not the memory replacer. And I think that's the, if you use automation as the human assistant, not the human replacer, then it's the right kind of automation. Final thing uh, for this, is even it does now for three days. 
Carolyn, I'll start with you. What did you see that you just, your eyes opened up, you said, that's cool? Yeah, so I watched the heads of product and engineering from Nike talk this morning, and they talked about the user experience of trying to get the latest new release sneaker and what that's like online and how they through implementing their version of a DevOps methodology, we're able to take this pretty horrific user experience where you, you know, click, you know, add new sneaker to my cart and you watch it spin for two to three hours and then you find out like you didn't get the sneaker. Um, and they have completely transformed that experience um, into something that takes minutes, not hours. Uh, and they've actually made it sort of fun along the way. So I thought that was just totally cool. Um, as a security person, I'm like, wow, that's a business thing that was super cool. Um, and actually, one of the things about that was, um, you know, their head of product talks about like a Nike digital hierarchy of needs. Um, and it went from reliable, secure, and stable foundation up through it's got to be fair, it's got to be fast, it's got to be fun. But what I thought as a security person was super cool that like their baseline was reliable, stable, and secure. Paula, did you see something? Um, I really loved this year, the I think the one thread of this conference that I just was totally um, fascinated with and in love with was there was a couple of talks about the human factors and the human experience. And... Um, and that came up a little bit. I mean, to the point of kind of the Nike, right? They're talking a little bit about the user experience at the, the very tip of that. But also, um, John Allspar talking about sort of really going beyond just that whole blameless retrospective, and, but, but just all of that aspect of how humans, you know, how, how we interact with the system, how our teams interact with the systems, of how we build and how we save. And this morning was on the keynote talking about um, the one that I think is probably the, the single most thing that blew my mind in this conference was the story about the airplane. And so just to kind of quick recap the story, um, as was told this morning, um, the idea was, you know, in uh, World War II, I think it was World War II, maybe World War I, they're flying airplanes, um, you know, over, I think it was World War II, right, to Germany, bombing Germany, flying back, and the airplanes are all shot up, right? And so we're looking at where the bullet holes are, wondering where we should put the armor to protect the pilots. And we're collecting all this data of all the airplanes that come back with holes in it. You know, which set of holes, you know, because armor you know, weight, airplanes lift, weight is a, you know, truly dead weight, right? You, you know, weight is a bad thing for airplanes. So we want to absolutely minimize, the only put the armor where we need the armor, right? So looking at all these patterns of holes, where should we put the armor? And it wasn't, you know, should we put it on the wing? You know, there are a lot of holes here. It was put it where the holes aren't. Those are the ones that don't come back. And that blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. And... I, you know, just as a, as a way of thinking of the problem, it's not the places, I may be back to the, if I I'll circle all the way back to the, the signing that document to take the risk, the risk wasn't the things I knew, because I had a handle on that, it was the things I didn't. And that to me is not what you're doing, you know, not where you're, you know, tracking stuff, where aren't you tracking stuff? How do, you know, where are you not looking? Because that's the place to be worried, not the place you are. And that's it. that probably, that single, <laughs> but it was a thread, actually. So that's what I appreciated was that there was a couple talks that touched on that in a couple different ways about how we impact the human systems. And um, I, I really think that that, to me, is what makes this such a great conference. 
over, nothing wrong with the technical conferences that I attend, I'm, I'm an engineer, I like those two, but, um, but there really is something about the human system because uh, that is uh, the most complex system we, we all work on, right? The, 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 the computers are relatively straightforward. They, um, they fail in repeatable and predictable ways, um, usually. <laughs> but the humans uh, creatively fail in ways we haven't considered. So I think that, to me, was a really fascinating. And I love that we brought in ideas from outside of that you know, traditional DevOps domain to kind of talk about that. You have been listening to OWASP 24-7 with your host, Mark Miller, and music provided by the George Cole Quintet. With support from the Nexus Community Project, supporting millions of open source developers worldwide.